The business world has turned on its head over the last 18 months. Um, amongst the melee, amongst the, the crisis of Brexit and, uh, and COVID, uh, I've started asking the question, where are the opportunities? Where will the opportunities be? Uh, and I suspect there will be more opportunities that come out of this melee uh, than, they've, than, than I've seen uh, in my lifetime. Uh, and, and I'd like to start to, to, to investigate that and, and to ask those questions. So why am I qualified to, um, to, to, to lead this debate? Um, well, um, I'm an entrepreneur, um, I'm an investor, I'm a coach, I'm a businessman. Um, I've started and scaled over 30 businesses, I've bought and sold businesses, um, made and lost money. I launched businesses on the stock market. I sold one for 10 times the float price. Um, I've led hostile takeovers successfully. So I think I've um, wear some of the battle scars and uh, and I'm qualified to, to, to ask the questions. But um, it's not really about me. Uh, what, what I've tried to do in this series and what I have done is uh, ask the same batch of, uh, of 10 questions to six very disparate uh, people who are involved in business. And they go right through the range from economists to billionaires to serial uh, business startup entrepreneurs to people that work in the arts um, who, who can see all the different angles um, about, uh, about business, really. Um, and what we're trying to ascertain is what does this kind of post- Brexit post-COVID world look like um, and how can we all benefit from it? So I look forward to meeting our six guests um, and asking them what the shape of things to come might look like in Business Britain 2.0. Jim Mellon is my, my guest this morning, uh, and I'm delighted to, uh, to be able to talk to Jim. Um, I've known Jim for some years uh, now. He is a, he's probably one of Britain's most successful uh, entrepreneurs, um, but he's got many interests. He's an investor. Jim is a fund manager. He's a writer um, of books and uh, music. Um, so he's got a, a diverse kind of range of interests. Um, but, but I think I wrote a glib line in, in my book, Eat the Pudding First, where I said it's easy to, um, to, to make, it's easy to be successful in business. You just have to predict the future and be right. Uh, and although that is a glib line, that's one thing I think over the years that Jim's uh, done very well indeed. He's uh, spoken out, he's predicted the future, and he has been right. He's backed his own uh, ideas. He successfully kind of predicted the um, credit crunch in uh, 2008. I know he's got strong views about uh, kind of world-changing events, almost financial revolutions uh, in the future, which will kind of change human behavior. Uh, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that. Um, I had a surreal moment with Jim, actually, several years ago, where uh, Jim, myself, and Luke Johnson looked to uh, take a 29.9% uh, stake in a public company called Lionheart. And I went off to pick the kids up from school, uh, and the announcement came out while I was away. So in that hour, when I got back, uh, the share price had gone from 6p to 24p which was incredible. And it wasn't because of my involvement. It was because people back Jim's 
canniness. So uh, without further ado, and because I don't want to blow any more smoke up as Jaxie, uh, <laughs> let me say good morning and uh, welcome, Jim. Thanks, Gary. It's like, lovely to see you. I haven't seen you for about a year and a half since Ibiza. Uh, no, that's true. That's so true. It's great uh, to see you. And uh, um, I'm heading back there today. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll send it your best, so to speak. Yes, and uh, and give the dogs a, a pat uh, from me uh, as well. I'll say hello to the animals. Okay, well, look, I'm asking the same uh, 10 questions um, about uh, Business 2.0, which is really the kind of post-COVID, post-Brexit uh, world that we're, that we're going to live in. Um, and I'm asking the same 10 questions of six disparate people across business and the arts uh, and, and economists. Um, but, but let me start off by saying, uh, what opportunities and threats does the new economy uh, represent for, for the business that you're involved in, Jim? Uh, well, I'm, you know, apart from sort of boring stuff like renting out flats, um, uh, I am largely involved in two things. One is biotech and the other one is related to biotech, which is clean food, which is the agricultural revolution that we're in at the moment, which is a, a necessary part of dealing with climate change. Um, in terms of biotech, the, the, the threats are always uh, the same, which is regulatory uh, hurdles, um, massive expenses, which can result in binary and possibly negative outcomes. Um, and for that reason, my partners and I worked together for a long time creating biotech companies, uh, try and diversify our portfolios. I, I would say that um, there is an additional threat at the moment, which is that there is a price for innovation. The United States typically, or the US consumers typically pay that price because they pay higher drug prices than elsewhere. Uh, and uh, the Biden administration is probably quite rightly looking at trying to find ways of reducing the incredible cost of drugs uh, in the US and bringing them down to levels that, for instance, we have here in the UK or in Canada, just across the border, or in Mexico, just across the border as well. And those, those are the uh, immediate biotech business threats. In terms of the clean food, uh, the... Uh, the main threat is the resistance of the uh, traditional agricultural lobbies to the idea of food being grown in laboratories and in industrial uh, conditions uh, without animals being involved. And, uh, you know, we're battling uh, that. But so far, I think that the movement towards healthier eating uh, is winning, partly because intensive farming of food accounts for about a fifth of global emissions. We all know that, I mean, anyone who's sensible knows that uh, we're in a climate emergency and we need to do something about it. And uh, one way of doing something about it is to reduce the number of intensively farmed animals and replace it with alternative proteins grown in labs or from plants. And um, uh, so that battle is in some ways being won. And uh, we, we're super excited about what's going on there. And, you know, this is not science fiction. Within a couple of years, all this stuff will be on the market. And, uh, Let, let's just talk about that journey for a second, Jim, because, I mean, you talk about griddle parity, don't you, which is one of the yeah. phrases that, that, that you coined, which I think is interesting. How quickly is it going to take for us to cotton on and actually, you know, if you want to feed Africa and India, uh, you know, a billion people in, in each place, um, how quickly can you, can you do that with artificial food? Well, it's not artificial because this food comes from uh, the stem cells of the individual species of animals. So it's just a question of how the stem cells are amplified. Uh, at the moment, they're amplified and grown in 
living cows. Uh, and a typical cow goes to slaughter at the age of about 28 months. Uh, this food from a small sample about the size of my fingernail can be grown in bio, is grown in bioreactors. And in 40 days, you get the equivalent of seven or eight cows worth of, um, of, of beef in the case of a cow, but any other type of animal. So, you know, uh, lambs or uh, chickens, etc. And uh, so it's not artificial at all um, because the same nutrients that a cow would eat in a feedlot uh, are given to the stem cells to amplify them. There's no general, there's no genetic modification involved in this. So it's not Franken food of any type. It's just a different way. If you regard the cow as a factory, this is a factory, but it's a more efficient factory. And just to underline that point, 2.5 units of input go in to produce one unit of output in the cell agriculture space, a cow absorbs 25 times more uh, inputs than it puts out in the form of, of meat. So this is much more um, productive. Uh, and at scale, I think the price of this stuff will be lower than conventionally farmed animals without antibiotic use, which is represents yes. a big pandemic risk, as you know, without emissions, without hormones, uh, and without contamination, which at the moment results in one in six people in the United States going to hospital every year um, from food poisoning. Uh, Am I right in thinking, Jim, that you can do the same thing with fish to avoid the mercury? And can you do this with cheese as well? Absolutely. So uh, in the case of uh, fish, that will be on the market possibly by the end of next year in the United States. Um, our company, Blue Nalu, is right at the forefront of, of this and can produce any form of fish. Um, and of course, there's no waste. So you've got um, no tail, no scales, no eyes, no head, blah, blah, blah. It's just the fillet of fish that you're getting uh, from this production process. Uh, and there is no microplastics, no toxins, no mercury, et cetera, et cetera, as you rightly point out. That will be at griddle parity faster than meat and probably uh, possibly by the end of next year, which is quite remarkable when you think about it. Uh, in terms of the meat, being at Colonel Parity, the plant-based stuff is already there. Um, so the Beyonds and the Impossibles are cutting their prices and they'll be down at sort of Tesco beef burger level uh, very quickly. Um, but the, uh, the lab-grown meat, I think, will be about five years till Griddle Parity. Good. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Um, second question really is more of a kind of Brexit-related question, which is uh, what will Britain's trading relationship be like uh, with the rest of the world in this new economy? I spent some time uh, living, for example, in Switzerland. I had a home in Switzerland for, for, for many years, uh, and I was impressed at how they'd embraced their independence with their connection with uh, Europe and the rest of the world. How do you see uh, Britain's future? Well, I think it, we've got to be very positive about it. I mean, I, I already I sense that, uh, you know, we're going to do better than the Eurozone economies. I mean, my beef with uh, Europe is not about free trade uh, or freedom of movement of labor. It's about the federalization of Europe and the sort of nanny statism that results from that and the convergence to a common monetary and disastrous monetary policy mm -hmm. uh, coupled with, um, you know, huge imbalances between uh, Germany and the rest, basically. Uh, that, and that's cost, my that, and and the cost of that bureaucracy as well. And, and the cost of that bureaucracy. I mean, I, I've got a house in Brussels, which I, I like Brussels, and you know, the basic the standard of living in the centre of Brussels is very high. It's because basically all those bureaucrats are there uh, living it up, basically. And uh, so I can see it all around me there. 
Um, but look, I think we can do quite well. I, I think that um, I was talking to someone yesterday that the UK must avoid a sort of industrial strategy where we uh, promote industries with lots of money, try and create national champions like France has unsuccessfully done, and other countries with a sort of planned economy have unsuccessfully done. We need the market to work things out. But we do know that we've got very strong um, foundations in uh, particularly in bioscience uh, and I think in food science in due course, um, and that we've got very strong foundations in things like quantum computing, which is going to be a, a remarkable thing. And, and I was a seed investor in a friend of mine's company called Cambridge Quantum Computing. I met with him yesterday and he said that UK is far ahead of China, the United States or whatever. And this is not a trivial matter because quantum computing it's going to absolutely change the world in many ways. And we don't know exactly how, but it's going to, it is going to be transformational. Well, it'll be the backbone behind all of the artificial intelligence. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's imperative. So I'm pleased that you're so uh, positive. Uh, do you think there's anything to worry about? Oh, yes. I mean, I think that, you know, uh, we need to repair relations with the European Union and, and, and uh, that will take, you know, lots of diplomacy, which... The Brits have been quite good at it in the past. Hopefully, they'll retain some skills in that area. Uh, and you know, we need to uh, diversify our trade, which I think they're, they're trying to do very hard in the in the country. Now, what's interesting to me is that the predictions, which you're very familiar with, Gary, uh, of imminent doom for the UK after 2016 have just not happened. You know, the city of London hasn't leached hundreds of thousands of jobs to the continent. The city of London has regained its status as the largest trading hub for shares in Europe after a sort of dire first couple of months. Um, uh, and uh, it's quite clear that the UK retains the edge in all financial services, legal services and service exports. And Europe needs that. And if they don't, if they're protectionists uh, against our strengths, then it will be to their detriment, not to ours, because there's plenty of markets for the UK to address. Um, let's move on to this kind of post-pandemic, uh, though, and we're seeing waves coming and going. We're seeing reports of blood clots coming and going. Um, what are your kind of thoughts um, post-pandemic? What kind of trends now are starting to embed themselves in the way that we think and, and, and do things that you think will will carry on? What are the trends that will emerge from uh, from what's happened? Well, I, Gary, you know Dathina, right? So she's been working on Zoom all the way through the pandemic. And I don't think there's any evidence that she wants to go back, particularly to the office, other than maybe one or two days a week. Now, I would imagine that if she can run her business uh, successfully over Zoom, uh, that other people can do the same. And so we are going to see a lower occupancy. I mean, I'm in the city of London in our apartment in the city at the moment. And it's, it's, you know, it's a fraction of what it would have been in a normal environment. So, yeah, we all know working from home is going to be a, a thing that's going to stay uh, more flexible working hours. All that's great stuff. Um, and so, you know, but I do think this pandemic is basically over. I mean, I, I, I feel that, I mean, maybe not in countries like Australia and New Zealand, but I feel that we're right at the tail end of it. There's a thing called Farr's Law, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which is uh, these viruses dissipate over time. They become weaker and more attenuated as they infect more and more hosts. And surely we're in that stage at the moment. So all the, you know, the concerns about Delta variants and upsurges, and all, I, I'm just not worried about it at all. I think that the British government, for a change, has done the right thing, which is basically 
let the economy let the economy get on with it. And uh, if you feel particularly vulnerable, you can stay at home. But otherwise, just uh, you know, don't let's let's not be too worried about it. I think it's over, and in five years' time, it will be a bit like the great financial crisis. Uh, you know, people would kind of forget about it and be getting on with their lives in in a, in a normal way. I do think you know you talked about your business going through the roof. I think anything to do with technology, uh, that sort of skill set, anything to do with, um, uh, you know, the, the, the sharper end of the UK economy will do extremely well. And maybe what this pandemic has done is to shift some of the crappier businesses like retail to the to their deathbeds um, faster than they otherwise would have happened. And then that's a good thing. Schumpeterian destruction. It is, but I think the government have taken a bit too long to do that, and that's left us with a big bill, um, yeah. a huge bill. Uh, I've always thought that markets change. I remember at school, the Chatelier's principle said that, you know, for a market in equilibrium, if a disturbance is applied, the market moves to reduce the effect of that disturbance, and I think that's what's what's happened with the uh, with the pandemic. But there is a bill, and I think it's nearing £400 billion in, uh, in Britain. There are still a lot of furloughed people. That needs to be sorted out, and that will be sorted out quite quickly, um, and people will suddenly realise whether they've got jobs or not. But who's going to fund that, uh, that bill? Who's going to fund the ongoing NHS requirement? Um, as people are aging and, and needing more kind of help in, uh, in in later life, and what do you think is going to be the consequence of that for business taxes, um, you know, inflation and 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 future investment, along with the sort of compliance and horrible kind of risk stuff that seems to be coming down the, the track as well. Um, I guess I'm asking who's going to pay the bill, and how will the bill? Well, be well in some ways, the 400 billion pounds is uh, not. Uh, a real 400 billion pounds because consumer savings have gone up dramatically during the period of the pandemic by about 200 billion. So you can say that about 200 billion is sort of being transferred um, onto the government's uh, balance sheet negatively uh, and, and then transferred to the consumer on the positive side. So um, the, the second thing is, I think it'd be a big mistake for the British government to do anything other than simplify uh, the tax system uh, and to uh, not to increase taxes, um, just to run the deficit, because inflation will have, we're, we're obviously, we're back into an inflationary cycle. I, I, in my opinion, there's no doubt about that, which is why everyone should own gold, silver, anything that's an inflation hedge. And that inflation uh, erodes the value of uh, government debt quite quickly. It has done in previous cycles, post uh, the wars, for 100% of GDP uh, and government debt at the moment, that's not super high in the context of the world, you know, you look at Italy, Japan, um, et cetera, um, then uh, I think that could come down to 50% over the next 10 years or so. If, he, if the Chancellor encourages um, economic growth by not raising taxes, by making us more tax competitive and simplifying the tax system. So I'm still a big advocate for a flat, flattened rate of tax. In terms of social care, there is no doubt that the social care, well, in fact, the NHS is a lumbering colossus uh, riddled with inefficiency. It unfortunately has taken on the aspect of a sacred cow during the pandemic. I mean, of course, it does great things, but it's also very inefficient in other ways. I don't know how any government's going to deal with that. Uh, it's going to absorb more and more and more and more money. Uh, you know, we're not quite at the US level. I think we're 11% of GDP on healthcare. In the US, it's 20%. This is unsustainable. Uh, levels of um, healthcare expenditure, particularly in the United States. Uh, social care 
in some countries like Germany, Japan, uh, I think even Switzerland, uh, post a certain age, so let's say the age of 40, you have a hypothecated tax, which is a tax that's directly related to your future social care that you're charged. Because by then, you're earning presumably more money. And by then, you can see in the not-so-distant future the possibility that you might go into social care. Uh, and so I think there should be a, a, a you know some sort of distinct tax for people above a certain age uh, that they're going to have to pay for their social care uh, in advance. And But that money is separated from the general government accounts and it's distinctly for social care. Um, it seems to have worked quite well in, in Japan and Korea, et cetera. And, and I, I, would, I would advocate it for here as well. So let's come on to my next question, which is really about... Uh, the government's relationship uh, with business and certainly in the circle that I'm dealing with, there's a lot less trust of uh, government and media than there was uh, before Brexit and before the uh, the pandemic. I think there's a great, far greater degree of cynicism uh, now. What do you think the relationship with, uh, with with business is going to be and, and that sort of future level of intervention uh, and control that society uh, has not seen before? I mean, I went to an outdoor event, Hampton Court Flower Show, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you know, I had to show double vax before I'd be let in, even though it was an outdoor event. See madness to me. Um, but, but I think we're starting to see much more government intervention now. How do you think that's going to pan out and how will we feel about that? I, 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 look, my view on this is that um, uh, I cannot understand people who are anti-vaxxers, right? So I don't understand. I mean, I, I guess there are some people for medical reasons can't be vaccinated. All right, mate, that's okay. Very few. But, but, very. very few. But I mean, basically everyone should be vaccinated. I, I think almost it should be... Mad- I mean, we would avoid the need for COVID vaccine passes if... If it was mandatory, that everyone was vaccinated, and they can do it now. They've got enough of them. They just—I mean, it's rather sad. Every day you read the number of people who are being vaccinated is, is pathetically small at the moment. It is, um, and we're only about eighty percent of the adults have been double vaccinated. Um, that means twenty percent are out there who haven't been. I've got a friend who lives in Scotland. He's in his mid seventies. He's a committed anti-vaxxer, and guess where he is now? In the ICU. So, I mean, the vaccines yeah. work, um, and. But, you know, if, if fundamentally, if I look at it, I, I think that we should make the vaccines mandatory, then we don't need to have COVID passes. But I, look, I, this is probably goes against your libertarian instincts, but I think it's about time the UK introduced ID cards because um, we have no concept of who's living here um, at all. Um, and, you know, the number of EU citizens was 2 million light in terms of the government's calculations when they actually turned up to be get settled status there were another two million on top of what the government thought were here we need to get id cards i mean i I, some people think it's an infringement on their liberty i don't i think it would be a great idea I'm sure you're against it, Gary. <laughs> well, I think I think you need a balance for you because I don't want to live in a in a state where you know everybody's looking over my shoulder all the time. Everyone's reading every email that I that I write. Um, you know, and some people say, well, it doesn't really matter if you're not writing anything bad, Gary. But I just don't necessarily want to live in a society where there's that much intrusion. Um, but I think that, that's, that there's an inevitability about that's the way that that we're. Uh, where we're headed to. Um, and if there are cameras outside Cannon Street tube station with facial recognition saying he hasn't paid his tax, she's an illegal immigrant, you know, I think it won't be uh, a particularly great place to, to live. Um, I so, agree. You know, I, I agree with that. And, and, you know, we don't want to be a Chinese type of society. 
um, there's got to be some balance. But we do have a parliament that's effective. You know, we do have a democracy. And uh, surely it's their job to make sure that whatever is instituted in the form of uh, government ID, that it's uh, it's tempered by, um, you know, privacy. I, 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 I'm with you. I just don't, I mean, obviously, because so, I've got nothing to do with government. I just really don't know, um, uh, you know, what what a good answer to that is. It's, it's more of a, a discussion than a, a polemical debate this one. I, I, I don't know what the answer is. It's, it's certainly uh, a difficult question to discuss. Let's, let's move on to something easier then, really. Um, we talked about uh, different ways that people are working, talk about Davina's homeworking. Um, I mean, I personally think Zoom is a bit of a blunt instrument, but it is kind of here to stay. But different people will thrive under those kind of circumstances. People might need more discipline to uh, work at home. I'm encouraging all my salespeople to come back to the office because I need to beast them for them to be the best version of themselves that they can be. But what do you think, what, what kind of entrepreneurs and, and business leaders are going to thrive in tomorrow's world? Um, we're starting to see some good movement on diversity now. We're starting to see lots more opportunities for people that, that wouldn't have had uh, that, that in the past. Um, how do you think that's going to pan out? Right. Well, so I've, I've got three, I mean, the very simple, straightforward back of an envelope mottos. One is that you've got to be curious in the modern world. You, you can't have a closed mind. Um, and, I, you know, I, and from time to time, I've had a closed mind and it's cost me money. Um, so, for instance, listening to my friend Ilias on quantum computing yesterday, um, you know, most people, if you ask them in the street, what is quantum computing, they would have no idea they wouldn't even understand the word quantum in the context of computing. Uh, and uh, yet it's probably something that's going to be more transformational than anything uh, that we've experienced in the last 10 or 20 years. And so uh, curiosity about what's going on in the world, I think is an, you know, an absolute essential for anyone in business. And that means lots of reading, lots of listening to your webinars or equivalent webinars where you know, people are talking about their lived experiences and uh, giving you the benefit of what they're thinking uh, in the future, of the future. The second thing is adaptability. You know, you particularly, Gary, in your business will see radical changes in the type of people over the last 20 years who are needed by companies because of the changing uh, economy that we live in and the changing technology. And that's going to get faster and faster. I mean, there was some uh, if we live to 100 years or on average, which I think in 20 or 30 years is an absolute possibility, then um, we're going to have multiple careers. You know, uh, uh, we're going to have many more careers than our ancestors or predecessors did. And then the third is application. There is no bypassing hard work uh, for uh, instant riches unless you win the lottery or you're some sort of unbelievable genius that, uh, you know, the Bill Gates or, or Mark Zuckerberg uh, level. Um, and so curiosity, adaptability, and application are the three mottos, I think, for any business person. And particularly today, as we go through a period of uh, uh, it's accelerating change, basically, accelerating change. We're, we're good. I, I think we're in for an absolute boom, um, particularly in this country. I, I think we're going to have economic growth for back to the levels of the 50s and 60s that will take a lot of people by surprise. Uh, I don't know about you. I've certainly uh, had to make decisions more quickly. 
Uh, and to do that, you need to have the data and, and you know, real life data feeds, you know, uh, rather than very historic management accounts, you need kind of up to date and future prediction of, of trends uh, and traits. Uh, and that's that's certainly happened. And I think that speed of decision making uh, in, in a measured way is uh, is really important, too. Um, in terms of the types of people, though, are you noticing any different trends from young entrepreneurs that you're backing or, or meeting um, or the kind of types of people, you know, we're getting away from those kind of Oxbridge Eaton track people. Are we seeing all kinds of people now who can, it's, it's a bit like songwriting, isn't it? You can do it from your back bedroom now. Uh, I, I'm excited about the kind of range and, and breadth and diversity of thought um, of, of people that I'm backing and investing are you seeing I, 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 I agree with you. I, I think that there is a, a move away from uh, the traditional elites uh, sort of dominating the business landscape. Um, and uh, that's a really good thing. What I worry about is that the young entrepreneurs uh, are sometimes sort of running before they can walk uh, because they all think that they have to make a you know, a big fortune by the age of 30. And that's a rare thing. I think it's a good idea to actually go work in a, a larger or more institutional environment for in the early part of your career for most people. Uh, and the second is that the crowding out uh, of sectors that are particularly fashionable. So, you know, a few years ago, it was developing apps. Uh, now it's fintech in the UK. Everyone wants to be involved in a fintech. Or crypto. Or, and crypto, yes. Um so yesterday we had, you've been to one of them, Gary, we had one of our lunches, you know, they're called Titech lunches, and you get a kind of variety of people. And uh, at the end, you have to make a recommendation for what's going to go up, what's going to go down. And literally all of them were involved, some sort of uh, crypto thing, and some of the names, you know, like Do- Dogecoin or, yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd never heard of some of these. Solano was another one. Um, and you know, I'm sure there's some validity to crypto, but it's uh, there's too much crowding in there. I think it's a very good point that you make. But also in fintech, you know, um, I, I think the fintech's a great idea, but, you know, the established incumbents are not, not stupid. Um, it's a bit like Elon Musk is now running up against the Volkswagens, the BMWs, the Jaguars, the, the General Motors. They're not stupid. They're not going to give up without a fight. And uh, they're going to produce very good electric vehicles as well so yeah and so with some of the more sophisticated chinese manufacturers as well yeah neo neo is a good example yeah yeah it is i think what i'm seeing um in younger people is a sort of obsession with the ip obsession with the idea whereas actually there are good ideas on many street corners it's actually about the execution it's about just throwing yourself into it and, and, and getting it done right and and people have shown that in you know boring you know domino's pizza or uh, addison lee you know they're just people that did what they do extremely well they executed extremely well and i think there's still uh, a, a time and a place for every entrepreneur to just find something they're passionate about and do it really really well and they'll be very very successful completely um, agree so good let's move on we talked about davina a bit we took her about three times now um doing business remotely seems to be here to stay is it a drag on, on productivity? Uh, is it a cost saving? I noticed uh, yesterday I was reading, uh, somebody was, I was talking to um, some members of my team that were saying that Google had, in some areas, said that they were hoping to cut salaries by over 20% for people that wanted to change and work from home, which um, seems to be taking advantage of that situation. Um, 
Do you think it's here to stay? Uh, in what cases can it be a cost saving? You know, smaller infrastructure. You don't have to have those huge city uh, head offices in Canary Wharf that um, the banks perhaps had. Um, or is it a drag on productivity? How do you manage people differently? Um, working from home. I, I mean, I, I I have always worked from coffee shops for the last 20 years, so I don't really know the office environment very well. But what I would say is that it depends on your age, right? So we all agree that the younger ones probably are the ones who you want to and should be in offices learning from, uh, uh, you know, more experienced people and also uh, socializing, um, getting the sort of full office experience and uh, older people. I mean, Tafina's 40, she's not old, but you know, she doesn't want to go out to the pub every night with all her colleagues um, and is quite capable of working at home. Also, it's a question of what's your home environment like? You know, you and I happen to live in rather nice places. I'm, you know, so we're not, you know, it's not a hardship to be working at home, but some of these young ones are, are living in bedsits and, you know, they just don't have any any space. I think it's got to be a flexible um, situation, which is why WeWork was such a good idea if it hadn't been so badly executed. Um, it, I think it would have been absolutely right for these times that we're in uh, today. I think there'll be a lot more flexible office space being used. Um, and uh, so it's just, I think it just depends on the employees and, and it depends on the uh on on the on the company but some companies like yourself you know you need to be on top of your salespeople. i completely understand that in Dafina's case she doesn't have a sales force so she doesn't need to be on top of the sales force um and the business seems to have thrived in during the during the pandemic i just depend it just depends it does um, certainly for the young hustlers uh, the young hustlers i'm working with there's nothing better than getting out face to face eyeballing people that kind of creativity over the water you know water cooler chatting about ideas in the office, that kind of creativity that, that, that sparks um, and the curiosity that comes uh, from that. So coming on to the, to the last few questions, talk a little bit about tr- cryptocurrency and, and the rising trend of that. Um, do you think that's a, a worldwide opportunity or is that kind of the emperor's new clothes? Um, are we going to be taking the power away from governments and, and financial markets centrally to kind of let it run its way uh, with, with kind of crypto? I, I, I very much doubt it. I mean, for a start, the foundations of crypto are about to be upended by uh, quantum computing, because crypto uses, you know, keys that will be within the next year or so, according to Ilias, broken by um, quantum. Well, they're very energy inefficient too, aren't they? Very inefficient. Well, some of them are. Bitcoin, in particular, yeah. Um, and uh, I look, I. If, if you know, I had the balls and I had the, uh, the the knowledge, I would be short of Bitcoin at the moment. Um, I, I think that you know, if, if you looked at it on a three or four year view, I think that notwithstanding its so called scarcity uh, value, the, the governments are just not going to have it, right? So you know, China's already clamped down on its own domestic mining, as they call it, business, and uh, I don't think it's going to be very far along before the United States does as well. I I I, I would stay away uh, from. Uh, crypto uh, my niece runs one of the crypto currencies um and is takes the absolute opposite side so it's possible that i you know i've got a closed mind and i'm being stupid but i just kind of it's not for me well you've been right more than you've been wrong in the past uh, jim so i'm you. still here and so so are you gary so that's a good <laughs> sign <laughs> um let's put covid behind us then so never mind covid uh 
is climate change going to finish us all off? Um, I read the other day, I was looking at, I was born in the 60s and um, the population of the world in the 60s was about 3 billion. Uh, and now it's pushing eight. So we've seen a lot more people in the world. Um, what's, what's, how, are we, how are we dealing with climate change? Yeah, well, uh, it's, it's such a, a, a complex uh, subject. I think that there is no doubt. I mean, there are a few uh, climate skeptics out there, but there is no doubt there is a trend towards global warming. I mean, it's, it's irrefutable when you look at the stats, probably caused by uh, increased human emissions or human-derived emissions, and uh, that something needs to be done about it. As it happens, the technology... Uh, which happens so often in history to alleviate, combat it, is developing at the same time as we're facing this very big problem. So it's a question of will uh, to change patterns of behavior and change our overall emissions. But the problem for the UK is that we uh, are 1% of global emissions uh, and emissions don't respect borders that it's you know what comes out of china affects us as much as it affects the chinese and as long as china and germany and other countries and australia are still burning uh very dirty coal uh you know whatever we do to combat emissions is going to be uh you know a drop in a absolute drop in the bucket however we can build good industries around uh green technology and you know i'll get back to what the, the area that i'm really focused on at the moment which is um uh you know changing our agricultural practices because uh if that's one fifth of emissions and it's more than any other form of man-made activity and we have a way of combating that and creating new industries and not spending the whole of our national gdp in building wind farms and solar panels and all that sort of stuff then we should be you know, the UK should be much more involved in that industry than it currently is. Let me just pick you up on something you said before about technology coming to the rescue. And of course, technology did come to the rescue with COVID and was finding the vaccines. And I was pleased and, and surprised, but pleased that we found the vaccine so quickly, having not found uh, a vaccine in the same way for HIV for 30 years. Suddenly, nine months later, um, we're testing and, and using vaccines that have proved to be massively successful. How how do you think technology will might come uh, to the rescue in, in climate change? Yeah. Um, well, I think there's all sorts of technologies that. I mean, for a start, we are generating uh, some days um, uh, half of our power from uh, genuinely renewable uh, energy. I think the hydrogen economy is a real economy, and it's going to be much, much more important in the future. I think that uh, decarbonisation is uh, accepted as being very important. Um, uh, Things like cutting down the Amazon to grow soybeans to feed to animals is going to be a thing of the past, which will be absolutely fantastic. Uh, carbon capture, we're well suited to that in the United Kingdom. We've got all these disused oil fields, which, and we've got the technology that we could actually capture a huge amount of carbon in this country. Um, and it, of course, it's a, it's a, it's a high-tech industry with very high-paying jobs, lots of technology involved, and uh, suits us in this country very well. And we should be, you know, being applauding it. We should be doing it, basically. We, should, we certainly should be applauding it. But, but is it really going to turn the dial or is it just a kind of drop in the bucket? You know, well, the, we... the most important thing is China to stop making new coal-fired power stations and the same with Australia and Germany, which is, you know, covers itself in green credentials, but is one of the biggest polluters in the world because 
it, I think about 40% of its energy still comes from lignite or brown coal from the former East Germany, even though they closed down their nuclear power stations. They're still among the worst offenders in terms of, um, of the, their, economic, their, their energy um, usage, um, which is terrible. It is, a, it is a conundrum. It is a concern. It is a worry. Um, my last question really um, isn't a good question, but it's what advice would you give to uh, any children as they enter the business world? Uh, what, what, what would be your kind of passing on pearls of wisdom? Well, I, I actually think that um, I get back to curiosity, adaptability and application. I mean, that, that applies to anyone, including kids going into the workforce. But I do think that, as I said earlier, that everyone unless you have a absolutely unbelievable, you know, USP, um, which you can find backing for at an early stage, uh, and you're prepared to forego uh, effectively the apprenticeship involved in going into an organization and working your way up a bit. And, and, you know, the ideal age, in my opinion, for being an entrepreneur is between 30 and 40. That's when Anyone who has that sense, I want to work for myself, I want to create something, should be doing it. After 40, probably too late. Although I know that you've reinvented you know, your corporate structures a few times, so have I. But we've had the experience in our 30s of doing it. Uh, and I, I would encourage really anyone, especially in the modern world, to, to take that entrepreneurial challenge. And you know, luckily in the UK now, we don't have this... Um, what we had before, which is a, the taint of failure, that if you fail in something, you can never do anything else again. Uh, the United States has always had that open-mindedness about, you know, it's almost better to have failed in something and then then you've learned your lessons, basically. Failure is good. Lessons. Failure is great because it teaches yeah. you what doesn't work. Um, yeah. I'd go even younger. I, I, I'd love to start uh, coaching kids that are nicking car radios at 14 and 15 and teach them how to be entrepreneurs, you know, and catch them yeah. right at the early ages. And I think unless you want to be a, you know, a doctor or a vet or an architect or an accountant, then, you know, don't go to university and study media studies, you know, and rack yeah. up 30, 40 grand worth of student debt. Um, you know, it's much easier to set up your own business when there's less to lose. You know, when you don't have a family, if you don't have a mortgage, uh, you know, don't get some student debt, drop out. And uh, as so many people have, uh, drop out uh, of, of Harvard or wherever you are and, um, and, and set up your own business. Uh, I, I agree with you. I'd continually encourage my children to, to ask why or why not of, 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 of kind of everything. And I'm personally really hopeful um, uh, and really positive um, uh, about the future. Uh, that's why I kind of wanted to do this series to um, try and uh, spread the kind of positivity about what, what, what I think is around the corner um, as a result of, of, of these two quite serious incidents that have, that have, that have happened. Um, any, any last uh, wise, wise words that you want to, um, to, to impart, Jim, before we wrap up? Uh, well, I, I just think that, um, you know, it's a shame that um, both you and I weren't born a bit later because we live in a world of most incredible opportunities. And although it's easy to get despondent about, you know, generational wealth gaps and uh, inequality of wealth uh, between the Jeff Bezos and the rest of us, uh, actually, um, I think we're going to go into a real golden age. And the, the one thing I would say, the reason why Germany, as an example, after the Second World War, ruined as it was, completely destroyed, is that knowledge, once learnt, can't be unlearnt. 
And we live in a world of remarkable and expanding knowledge. Uh, the internet has made that uh, possible, uh, expanded it because people can collaborate across all continents. Our knowledge accumulation is incredibly rapid at the moment. And that knowledge can't be unlearned and it can be used for good. And that's why I think we're in a really golden age and, and, and you know, embrace all the opportunities because not only will you get rich, you'll have fun doing it um, and you can make an impact that's positive for the place that you live in and also for the whole world, basically. That's a, that's a great positive uh, note to uh, to end on. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for spending time. Gary, so nice to see you and I hope to see you in person Good. quite soon. <laughs>